This uh, first question comes from Yogesh, who apologizes for the long question that's been waiting 10 months to ask. Is him. the mic on? Yeah, all right. Okay. So he's been waiting 10 months to ask these questions. All right. So it's a little long. <laughs> <laughs> um, what if all this spirituality has been built up just to make man stop searching for the infinite? Because in the end, it comes up with the thing that even matter is God, matter is self. So by the end, we have to become materialists. Isn't this like fooling ourselves? I have friends who believe in the Karl Marx theory. They believe that religion is the opium given to the poor working class by the rich ruling class. After reflecting on this, I realize that it is true that one becomes totally adapted to suffering when he realizes that suffering is to the body, not to the soul, and that he is untouched by all the pains. But this has made people adapt to oppression in many forms. We have an easy attitude towards suffering in society. We don't take interest in the political scenario. Right now in India, a rightist government is ruling with a stunning majority. We all fear them going off track and being unfair to other religions, or maybe join hands with the corporate world and widen the rich-poor divide. So how should one handle the mental tensions being generated in the mind due to the debates over politics and religion, seeing that many of the traditions have been morally wrong and the political ideology he supports gets challenged most of the time? Should one turn his back over issues in society or should he take up the task of bringing change, no matter if it costs him his career, his pursuits, his mental peace? All right, so since he's waited for 10 months, so many questions. <laughs> number of questions have been packed into it, but I can identify some threads. One is that um, it's the, the search for the infinite stops if you give him the religion. But no, the answer is religion is the search for the infinite. It does not stop with religion. It begins with religion. When one becomes truly, seriously religious, which means I would prefer the word spiritual, we are all seekers after the infinite. If you are not spiritual, you are not seeking. You see, the person who is not spiritual is the person who is satisfied with the world as it is in front. That's it. What is presented to us, this world, this life, this body, the, these people, that's all. I'm not interested in anything else. Then that person has no spiritual quest. If a person has a spiritual quest, the person is searching for the infinite. So that's there. Second, if you follow this non-dualistic teaching, I think that's where it co it's coming from. Ultimately, if you say everything is God, everything is spirit or Brahman, then even matter is spirit, matter is also Brahman, so ultimately we become materialists. Is that what he's asking? He's asking that. Is that true? No, that's not true. It's just the opposite. What we call matter, what we understand as matter, is properly understood nothing but Brahman, spirit. Brahman misunderstood is the world of matter and space and time and energy. Time, energy, space, uh, matter, properly understood, is not, none other than Brahman. So yes, while it is true that all this is Brahman, but it's only in the sense that Brahman is the reality and all this is the appearance thereof. It's not that all this matter, time, space and energy is, the real, is as real as Brahman. It's not. According to Advaita Vedanta, only Brahman is real. And that's what we have to find. 
In fact, um, there is an interesting correspondence between Swami Vivekananda and one of his disciples, an American lady, who writes, and the correspondence is in poetry, in verse. She writes, I have understood what you have taught. You have taught that all is God. And he writes back, I have never taught such strange doctrine that all is God. He says, unmeaning talk. And then she writes back, but I have heard you saying that. That all is God. He, he says, no, what I meant was, only God is, the all is not. What seems to be all this is in reality Brahman. That is what has to be understood. When Sri Ramakrishna was asked, please explain religion in one sentence to me. He said, Brahman alone is real, the world is an appearance. Understand that. He does not mean the world as it is is Brahman, no, no, no. Matter as it is is Brahman, no, no. When you, be, when you realize Brahman, you do not become a materialist. Rather, a materialist becomes a, a spiritualist. Uh, spiritualist is not quite the right word. It becomes Brahman. Brahma Veda Brahmeva Bhavati. The one who realizes Brahman becomes Brahman means already being Brahman realizes that he, she was and is and will always be Brahman. So that's the thing. Now, if we do this, are we ignoring society? Are we ignoring politics? Are we ignoring the environment? Yesterday I saw in, on the 71st Street, there was a big procession. Earth Day and Science Day. and So I was so happy to see so many people who are concerned about the issues of the day. Now will religion make us apathetic to this? No, it will not. Religion is not a private spirituality. It is no spirituality at all. When you are truly spiritual, you are also engaged with the world. And in that sense, you, have, you are you're truly engaged with the world. You have, you're, you're centered in the truth. And then from that center, you look out into the world and you do what has to be done. If you sense something is wrong and it needs to be set right and you feel a calling to do it, you must do it. You must go forward and do that. Religion and spirituality will only help you to do that. It will not obstruct you to do, from doing that. This is sometimes a misunderstanding of Vedanta. Vivekananda himself had to face this. Uh, once, when he came, went back to India and started all that work, schools, hospitals and so on, not, no, as a person no less than M, Master Mahasha, the person who has compiled the gospel, has written the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, Kathamrita, he objected. He said, is all this really necessary for a monk? Monks should beg for their food, wander around and teach Vedanta. And, and do their own spiritual practices, strive for liberation. That's the goal for monks. Why all this work? And Vivekananda replied sharply, doesn't your Vedanta, see, your Vedanta, doesn't your Vedanta tell you that the Atman is ever free, what we are just talking about, you're always Brahman. Then why are you trying to get liberation for the already liberated Atman? Even that effort which you are saying, a monk should put forward effort for his liberation only. Even that effort, according to your own Vedanta, is contradictory. Because you should realize that you are always free. And this I have started for the welfare of not only the sadhus, for the welfare of the world. M was not convinced. He kept quiet because he couldn't argue with Vivekananda. He just kept quiet. Years later, when Vivekananda had passed away, the Holy Mother, Ma Sharada, was visiting our um, hospital in Banaras. And Swami Brahmananda was in that party. M, Master Mahasaya was in that party. And many, many others had accompanied them. 
And the Holy Mother went around the hospital and then she commented, I see that the children here are doing the Lord's work. They're doing the work of Sri Ramakrishna. Veritably Sri Ramakrishna is present here. I feel it. And as a token of her appreciation, she asked uh, them to give 10 rupees. In those days, 10 rupees was a big thing as a, as a donation for the hospital. And of course, the monks didn't spend it. Even now, if you go to the hospital, they will show you the old 10 rupees of, of the British era, which was given by the Holy Mother to the hospital. They preserved it in a glass case. It's there. Now, when she said this, something interesting happened. Swami Brahmananda was nearby. He smiled and he looked at a younger monk and he said, Go and tell M precisely what the Holy Mother has said. This was years after some, uh, Swami Vivekananda had passed away. So that monk went and said, I've been asked to convey this message. And the Holy Mother said, this is the work of the Lord that is going on. And M burst out laughing. He understood the implied message. And he said, now I cannot, I, I cannot refuse to accept this truth. That this social engagement, that this working for the welfare of society, for the poor, for the oppressed, for the deprived, is very much an expression of spirituality. It's an expression of spirituality. So spirituality will not make you apathetic. On the other hand, spirituality will give you a genuine basis for whatever welfare action you want to take. And it will prepare you as a right instrument for that. The Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, who has written The Miracle of Mindfulness and all that, he writes in one place that when he first came to Europe, that was at the time when Greenpeace in Europe was agitating against nuclear weapons. So peace activists, and he makes a comment. He says, I was amazed to see how angry the peace activists are. <laughs> they think there's nothing wrong in it. I'm, I have a righteous indignation. I'm angry, of course, because I have a right to be angry. But it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Anger never helps. Anger never helps. You see, anger automatically gets directed not against the evil, but the evil doer. I'm angry against usually someone, not just something, not only their actions. Anger, first of all, burns. It's a fire. What does the fire burn? The place where it is lit, it burns that first. When I light anger, when I have anger in my heart, first I get burnt, I get harmed, and then somebody else may get harmed by that anger. Anger never helps. Even when you are agitating against something bad, when you are working against something bad, it always helps to be peaceful. Mahatma Gandhi, he fought against the British tooth and nail for the independence of India. He never hated the British. And they, they recognized it. That this is a person who does not hate us. He loves us as much as everybody else. So, spirituality is, is a very good preparation. Is a very good, uh, it prepares the person for action in the world. Is there anybody from the live audience? You're also invited to ask questions. Anybody? Otherwise, we'll go on to the... Yes, please come forward. Yes, come here. <laughs> because the microphone is here. Swamiji, the Gita says that we are our own friend, we are our own enemy. So is there nothing external... We blame a lot of people and, uh, you know, for our lot of issues. But is it always we are looking within our, ourself or is there any external factors also? 
the way of vedanta is to make an adjustment on the subjective side whatever there is externally it is much less important than the than the problem inside us so when the gita says the mind alone is your greatest enemy the mind alone is your greatest friend what does it mean the uncontrolled mind the angry mind the greedy mind the lustful mind is my greatest enemy the controlled mind the peaceful mind the devoted mind the mind which is full of is is a well-wisher for the entire world that is my greatest friend with that kind of mind i can deal with the issues outside the issues outside will come and go the real problem is inside there will always be problems outside which we have to deal with but once we deal with the problems inside in the subjective dimension we can much more easily much more effectively deal with the problems outside that's the point now um question from the internet audience yes <coughs> This is from Ajoy Vyad Swamiji. In your talks, you give many examples about the nature of the world in relation to the true self. Prominent among them are one, a dream, two, the snake and the rope, and three, the wave in the ocean. Swamiji, I find that all three are different in the sense that a dream is a, a complete non-reality. A snake superimposed over a rope indicates that there is a reality right there, but in ignorance the mind perceives it as something else. A wave in the ocean is kind of the same truth, appearing differently, but its appearance essentially is not different than what it is. Which analogy would you say is the most accurate representation of the world and our body-mind complex? All right. Very good question. <laughs> Advaita Vedanta uses a lot of examples to point out something that cannot actually be directly spoken about. So that's why we use all these examples. And the snake rope, of course, is a classic example of Vedanta. There's this story in the Uttarakhand, in, in northern India, when this boy ran away from the village to become a monk. And the people in the village, they went in search of him. Somebody went to an ashram and found the boy who had become a monk, a Vedantic monk. and he stayed in the ashram a few days and then he came back to the village and the people in the village were interested how's that lad how is he doing what do they do in uh, what do the monks do all day long and this man reported well they have a problem in the ashram in the in the monastery there it seems there are a lot of snakes there <laughs> every day in the morning they talk about a snake which has covered a rope and they work and they decide they try to talk about how to drive the snake away and they come to some kind of conclusion and the next day in the morning the snake is back <laughs> the snake and the rope the rope appearing as the snake is a classic example which is used but yes his point is well taken the examples are different and truly so and on purpose so there are a number of things i would like to say here an example is always meant to illustrate one point Sri Ramakrishna used to say in Bengali, "Upoma agdeshi." There is something that the the person using the example wants to convey to you. Now you must understand what he wants to convey. That's the point of the example. Not misunderstand. You'll see how it is applied in in these examples. When you talk about an example, 
you want to talk about something you are using that example to talk about it we're talking we're talking about brahman and the world we are using snake and rope right we are talking about brahman and the world we are using snake and rope now there is something common which is helping us to talk about it that common factor must be understood everything in the example will not match everything in the exemplified that's the very nature of an analogy or an example when you say a man is as brave as a lion you expect that man to be courageous but you don't expect that man to be going around on all fours and growling and jumping on random people and eating them up <laughs> because he's like a lion no he'll be as brave as a lion means means courageous that's only in one point you wanted to express only one point there similarly now this is a really good question what is the point being expressed when you say the world is like a snake in a rope or it's like a wave in the ocean or it's like a dream what what is the similarity note something here i i was listening to the language used that in the case of a dream ajay says there it's not at all real whereas in the case of the snake and the rope there is something real there by which he means the rope which appears as a snake when you are talking about a dream it's not that there is nothing real there there is something real there that's the dreamer in the dream the dreamer does not the dream the person who's sleeping and dreaming that person does not appear appears as a role in that dream itself has a body in the dream a dream body and a dream role to play but in all of the dream what is the underlying reality unseen reality there it's the mind of the dreamer isn't it the whole dream is constituted of the mind of the dreamer exactly like that when you see a rope in front a snake in front it's actually a rope you don't know that it's a rope but with the false snake which you are seeing all of it is virtually only the rope and nothing else the two examples are not as different as you would uh, think they are there is a reality which is being misunderstood there is a reality which is appearing as something else the mind of a person sleeping and dreaming you've forgotten that you are sleeping in your bed you're safe and sound you are having a nightmare and terrible things are happening all that is generated by your own mind in the dream it's a virtual reality generated by your mind there is a reality appearing as something else in that sense there is a reality the rope appearing as a snake okay in the same way what is meant is that there is a reality brahman unseen just as you do not see that you are in your bed and sleeping in your dream you see everything else except the dreamer in the same way we see everything else here except the reality which is existence consciousness bliss now just like the rope which is in front of you and yet you do not recognize the rope as a rope you see the rope as a snake in exactly the same way brahman is actually in front of us front of us in one of mundakopanishad it says brahman is in front of you brahman is behind you brahman is to your side brahman is above you brahman is below you inside and outside everywhere and always is brahman alone and we say nowhere neither in front nor back nor above nor below nowhere wave and the water example is there that the reality is that same reality the wave is nothing but water through and through but if a little wave asks a the guru wave you said that we are all water 
But where is water? Where? Up, down, below. Where is water? I only see a wave. I see myself. I see you. Where is water? He is seeing water. That little wave is seeing water. Is exp- seeing means within quotes. It's all water around him. Doesn't recognize it. All the time. Experiencing water. It's like somebody looking at this and saying, yes, I see the lectern. What do you mean wood? Where is the wood? It's a lectern. If I say, no, this is the wood. Swami, you are touching the front of the lectern. But where is the wood? It's all wood. But it's all lectern. Where is the wood in this? If you say like that, you understand what is wood and what is the lectern. So you understand the meaning of this example. But when the enlightened person says it is all God, we are in the same situation. What do you mean it's all God? It's a man, it's a woman, it's a friend, it's an enemy, it's a um, a building, it's a sky, it's a flower. Where is God in all of this? We are having exactly the same problem. So all of these examples apply. The wave and water example is one. In the Upanishads you will find continuously, not the snake and the rope example, you will find pot and clay. There are lots of pots then, I think. Whenever you go and dig up an ancient civilization, what's the first thing you find? Pottery, yes. So pot and clay. And uh, golden ornaments. And even a nail cutter and iron. That example is there in, in, um, in the Chandogya Upanishad. Iron and implements made of iron. What they're trying to point out there is, there is a reality out of which it is constituted. Now don't misunderstand. I for a long time preferred the snake rope example and I, I was a little uneasy about the clay and pot example. You know why I was uneasy? Maybe many, many of you have that uneasiness. Because we have the feeling that the clay is shaped into a pot. So is there something called Brahman which is shaped into the world? We have the feeling that a clay is somehow transformed in some way at least. Though it is clay but it is somehow transformed. Something is done to it. And really in some sense a pot is created. Which is true. So is it like that with Brahman and the world? Was there existence, consciousness, bliss before creation? And then something was done to it. And now it's a world and people and life and stars and planets. Is that what has happened? That's not the meaning. We are missing the point. You know what's the point of that example? The point of the example is simple and profound. Clay and clay and pot example. Water and wave example. The point is simple and profound. The point is this. In the pot, in the pot, there is nothing but clay. The only reality is clay. In the pot, there is no second thing apart from clay. If you take a pot, first of all, it's a pot. Stage one. Look deeply, somebody tells you, the pot is an effect, the clay is the material cause. Material out of which this effect called pot has been made. You say, okay, I get it. There is something called clay which has been made into a pot, but it's still a pot. Stage three. Look closely now. The cause of the material cause of the pot, clay. The top of the pot is clay. The bottom of the pot is clay. The sides are clay. The inside is clay. It is true and true clay only. Recognize it. Yes. And the fourth stage. Show me a pot apart from that clay. There is no pot. It's a name and a form and a function. It's a form. And there's a name, pot. And a function. You can put water in it or whatever. But this material, the thing, the reality, the substance, the mass, the weight, is the clay. The constituting clay, water, whatever it is, which has made the pot. 
there is no second real thing i'm using words very carefully no second real second real thing apart from the clay there if it was there show it to me separately clay here and pot here no i'll sell you the pot i'll keep the clay no no you cannot in the same way what is meant and the same thing applies to water and wave so what is meant by that example is for the enlightened person everything here really precise use of the word again really really is brahman name and form man woman function you know chair table buildings earth and sky merits and demerits good and bad all of that they are the names forms and functions superimposed on brahman one existence consciousness bliss and vedanta has procedures for showing you this not just as a claim just as you can easily recognize the wood in this lectern the clay in the pot and the water in the in the wave exactly in the same way you will be able to recognize existence consciousness bliss in everything in life inside and outside that's the meaning of the example that's the real meaning of the example of water and wave clay and pot so all of these examples are correct but they all have slightly different um different uses to teach different things about vedanta and not all of them are correct in every respect no example is perfect in every every respect that's the whole nature of an example drishtanta in sanskrit in sanskrit two words are the drishtanta and darshtantika drishtanta example darshtantika what do you want to explain with that example so the example and what you want to explain will be similar in some respects and dissimilar in other respects that you have to understand otherwise if you say clay is the reality and pot is an appearance in the same way brahman is the reality the world is an appearance so you think that oh so the world is supposed to be round and ho- and hollow and brahman is brown and it's it's a uh, some kind of crumbly material which you can make no no those characteristics are incidental they are not done what is meant what is meant is the reality of the pot is clay the reality of this world is brahman as vivekananda said in that poem the world is not god alone is brahman alone is reality alone is world is not means names and forms have no reality apart from brahman but good question one must learn how to use these examples and understand the examples uh, in their right context live audience here anybody yes please come here thank you so much um i have a um, question uh, in dilemma with my son we discuss about vedanta and uh, and he's more a science type of person and i i tell him that examples of um um of swami vivekananda seeing devi uh, ramkrishna paramahansa seeing devi and and then i try to bring it down to since it's difficult for him to comprehend talk about ramanujam getting all the mathematical equations from devi and uh, so we have i'm unable to convince him he says look science is more honest hmm. what you're explaining you cannot convince me 
hmm. the way science does. Right. So I'm in a dilemma how to explain to him. It's a very good question. You know why science is more convincing? He's absolutely right. And I agree with him. You know why science is more convincing? Because science has truth on its side. Science can be corroborated. Can be, you can verify it. It is, it is rational. It's logical. It's verifiable. Right? And its claims are out there. If you have any doubts, go and check it out. Learn the science for yourself. You're welcome to check out the data. You're welcome to do the experiments for yourself. You have to understand it and you can check it out. And what Vivekananda said was, religion is exactly like that. You don't have to believe in it. Here are the methods. They're different methods than science because it's internal. It's not external. But you can have the same experiences that anybody else has had. I'm going to give the answer in two levels. One is the answer which Vivekananda gave in this country in the 19th century and in India also. I'm giving that now. But I'll give you a deeper answer a little later. Um, so religion is realization. Just as science is a matter of experience and verification, religion is also experience and verification. Uh, Vivekananda clearly said that. He put it in these terms because it would be acceptable to the people in the 19th and he knew in the 20th century also which was coming. Uh, people wanted a rational religion, not a religion where you just have to believe. So he said religion is realization. How did Narendranath become Vivekananda? Exactly like your son, he was asking the question, have you seen God? Or is it something you just, just find in books? Is it something that you just have to believe? No. So Ramakrishna Paramahamsa told him, I have seen God, just as I see you. And that's what caught Narendranath and he became Vivekananda. The Patanjali Yoga Sutras are an entire manual of experience. You do these techniques and you will get these experiences which will convince you. Right? Even the traditional dualistic approaches, the bhakti traditions, in India it has always culminated in experience. All the great saints, whether Tulsi Das or Mirabai or all the devotional saints, they all had experience of God in their chosen ideal. They actually had visions of God. They saw God in that way. They, they interacted with God. So it was always experience-based. Now you may challenge those experiences, but remember, those experiences are replicated and they, they can be replicated. They never say, Vivekananda said, if somebody says, I have seen God, but you cannot and you must believe in me, don't believe in such a person. You too can see God and you must see God. You must experience God. God experience, he says, is the purpose of life. It's not a topping you can put on your main order, one extra optional on top. No, it is the main order. God realization is the, is the purpose of life and it's realization. So that is my first answer. That these, there are techniques by which you can get these experiences for yourself and verify them. And it's a worthwhile project to take up. It's really worthwhile. There's nothing more worthwhile in life. But let me go to another answer, which is more subtle. Um, it is this. You know what is the problem in believing in, when, when religion speaks about, I saw God, even seeing God. What's the problem? The problem is, the existence of God is heavily faith-based. You start off by believing and you proceed for a long time on belief until you get some experience. It's based on faith. 
how do I know that God exists? The things that science talks about are evident. They are either seen, either they are seen by my eyes, by my own senses, or by instruments which can extend the power of my senses. Microscopes, telescopes, particle accelerators and whatnot. So, all these science deals with a tangible reality. Even the intangible reality which it deals with, the uh, tiny atoms and subatomic particles and all, they are made tangible by instrumentation and by proper scientific procedures. Whereas, what religion claims to deal with seems to be entirely faith-based. You just believe in it. It seems to be like that. For such people, and there are many such people, there is another approach. You don't have to start off with God. Start off with yourself. Start off not in, in search of God, but in search of who am I? What is this person? Who is this person? Our own existence is never um, doubted. You can doubt the existence of God. In all the theistic religions, there will be some effort spent in trying to convince people of the existence of God. So in Christianity, for example, you have the theological proofs of the existence of God. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas, the five important proofs of the existence of God. In Nyaya, philosophy of Hinduism, which is a dualistic philosophy, you have, I, I know of number of philosophers who have given multiple proofs. Udayana Acharya gives nine proofs of the existence of God. And you see, they're struggling. They're struggling to establish the existence of God. But when you look at yourself, you don't have to give proofs of the existence of yourself. Nobody seriously doubts. But what we doubt is, what is the nature of the self? Is it a limited being? Is it an unlimited being? Is it an appearance? Is it momentary? Different theories of the self. But the self is something is there here that we nobody can doubt. So for people who are interested in spirituality and yet they find it very difficult to take up, they find it unconvincing to take the path of dualistic, theistic religions, it's much better to investigate the self. That's why Vedanta appeals to such people. Don't ask about God, ask about yourself. Who am I? Am I the body? Am I the mind? Am I a combination of body and mind? Or am I something more which Vedanta speaks about? And at every step, there's no question of any extra belief. You verify it by understanding and by noting it. You see, even in yoga, which Vivekananda talks about, there can be a doubt. Somebody actually asked Vivekananda in India, you are saying by the practice of these techniques, I can actually experience the spiritual realities. Good. But the catch is, these techniques are difficult and will take me 30 years of hard effort. There's an entry barrier there. How do I know right now that what you're talking about is real? Right? Even experience of God is a long-term project. Until that time you have to proceed on some kind of... Of course it does not take much faith because the more you practice yoga, the more you see. To that extent you see it's correct. It's right. You don't have to wait till the very end when suddenly God pops into a, a existence in front of you and then you say, okay, it was all right. No, till that point... Even a little practice of this saves one from great fear. So that process is self-verifying. But Vedanta goes a step further. It takes for its datum, it takes for its datum your own existence, which is beyond any doubt. So that's my answer. For such minds, and I am very much in sympathy with such minds, so I feel that the 
path of self-enquiry. I have said this earlier, let me repeat it. It's a very interesting idea. Vedanta basically says that thou art. You are Brahman. That thou art. That means in, Bra- in Vedanta, that means God actually. Saguna Brahman. Thou means the individual. These two kinds of consciousness, individualized consciousness and cosmic consciousness. Remember, individualized consciousness, we feel ourselves. It's not a matter of any, any kind of belief. We experience ourselves all the time. That cosmic consciousness which one calls God is a matter of faith. But these two are essentially the same consciousness that is the teaching of Vedanta. Correct? Now, look, look how it's interesting. All the religions of the world and all kinds of religious aspiration, spiritual aspiration are either one of these two types. I have seen young people coming to become monks in the order. I ask them, what do you want? What are you looking for? They cleanly divide into two groups. Some of them say, I'm searching for God. Majority, many of them they say, I'm searching for God. What's the truth, man? Give me the truth, they'll say in this country. The truth about this entire world. The uh, other group says, God is nice and good. Good luck to him. But I am interested in, who am I? What's the purpose of my life? Who, what is the meaning of this life? And who am I really? Searching for the reality of the self. Searching for the existence of God. Two realities. Two kinds of approach in spiritual life. Now look at the religions of the world. Some of the religions are that oriented and some approaches are thou oriented. That thou art, tat tvamasi. Some are tat oriented, some are tvam oriented. That oriented, thou oriented. Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Zoroastrianism and many many forms of Hinduism when you worship Vishnu or you mentioned the Devi, uh, worship the Divine Mother, many forms of Hinduism, you worship Shiva, they are all God-oriented, that-oriented, oriented around Saguna Brahman, Ishwara. And there is another kind of religion, Buddhism for example, Jainism, or in Hinduism the Sankhya Yoga philosophies. You, you thought I was going to say Advaita Vedanta, but no. No, no, no. Advaita is something else uh, again. Sankhya, Yoga, Buddhism, Jainism, they are very different from each other, but all of them are concerned with self-realization. Buddhism is not very concerned with, with God. There are entire Buddhist communities, philosophies, which actually actively deny the existence of God. Sankhya does not talk about God. Yoga speaks of God, but you investigate the nature of God, that yoga, I mean Patanjali yoga. If you investigate the nature of God spoken about by Patanjali yoga, you will see it's not the God of religion. It is the, as we said, the the primal guru, the one who, uh, the ever free soul who helps us on the path of realization. But not the creator of the world, not the rewarder or punisher, nothing like that. So there is an entire type of religion which is oriented towards the towards self-inquiry. And the two religions are different, suited to different minds. This kind of religion, the God kind of religion, deals with, you'll see it's mostly centered around temples and houses of worship and churches. It's centered around um, uh, uh, around worship and prayer and devotion and bhakti and festivals and food, lots of delicious food. And, and so many things and songs and love. 
these are traditions of bhakti traditionally most of them and they have other sites also but not mostly it is this kind the other kind if you see buddhism jainism sankhya yoga they are very introspective religions they are centered around meditation many of them many of them again i'm saying they have these things have developed for thousands of years so they have aspects of both sides they are very complex systems but traditionally if you see the stream especially the original starting it is very inward looking it is meditative it is ascetic it's often very monastic the, these traditions and they are more uh, spiritually inclined philosophical meditative and each of these systems these two approaches they had their advantages and disadvantages think about it the a disadvantage of the god oriented approach is you have to start with belief in god your son's problem and problem of many many people throughout the world you have to start with belief if you are seriously interested in religion it becomes a big hurdle many people are conventionally interested they go to a temple or a church on sundays or on, on do pujas that god is a peripheral part of their life so they are not really asking the question but if you really ask the question then it becomes a serious problem does god exist how do i know i could be fooling myself is it ramakrishna saw god he could be fooling himself hmm? who knows how do i know god exists or not a doubt because it's based on faith we don't see god at least not not for a very long time whereas the self inquiry methods this side has the big advantage it's not based on faith in that sense because the self exists nobody doubts it that i am there nobody doubts it nature of the self is open to doubt i know there must be there should be questions since your minds didn't the buddha doubt the existence of the self the buddha doubted the existence of a permanent immortal atman but that you feel i am that nobody doubts because everybody feels it how can you doubt something that you feel all the time so they have the advantage of the self is not a matter of faith it's a matter of experience everybody experiences the self but what is the disadvantage the disadvantage is that the self it's no use to me saying that i exist that's my problem that i exist i have all these problems in my life my existence is surrounded by problems it's a limited existence it's a miserable existence it's existence which is threatened by death which is threatened by disease and dishonor and frustration and failure it's something that's troubled by desire and and uh, ambition all of this it's a troubled existence that's the problem and the advantage in in the other, other side is this problem is not there on that side god if he god exists he she it if it exists has no problems omniscient all powerful all pervading all knowing all loving all good what problem does god have god has no problems if he exists my existence is not in doubt but i have a lot of problems <laughs> now here is the here is the climax i'm coming to advaita non dual vedanta bring the two together you know what's the genius of advaita vedanta it brings the two traditions together to two streams together leaving out the problems of both combining the advantage of other how does it combine the advantage of b- both of them see the certainty of your own existence is combined with the infinitude of god the doubt about the existence of god is done away with because what you speak about what god you speak about in vedanta is your own self 
your own self properly understood is Brahman. Brahman in Vedanta is nothing but you. And you, immediately you have to say, you are not the body and mind, the individual person. You are nothing but Brahman. The infinitude of Brahman removes the finitude of the self. The problems of the self are removed because you realize yourself as infinite. The certainty about your own existence removes the doubt about the existence of God. Somebody in Uttarakhand in, in Himalayas asked a teacher, non-dual Vedanta teacher, in Hindi, Ishwar ke astitva me akatya praman dije. Give me an irrefutable proof of the existence of God. Irrefutable proof. Nobody, nobody should be able to deny that. Immediate was the answer. Aapka apna astitva, your own existence. Because in Vedanta, your existence and God's existence are one and the same. What is the problem is, Vedanta says, your finitude, that you limit yourself to one body and mind, that has to be done away with. That is a mistake and Vedanta seeks to correct that mistake. That's the purpose of Vedanta. That's the beauty of Vedanta. Your certainty that I exist, God's infinitude, combine it, I am infinite. That is the meaning of Aham Brahmasmi. That is the meaning of that thou art. Thou, the indubitable certain existence called thou, art that, that infinite existence. I see how the two religious traditions, when they interact with each other. I remember one, one um, interfaith conference which I attended. And there were people from all religious traditions, Sikhs. It was organized by the Sikhs in India. There were Hindus and Sikhs and Christians. There was even a rabbi from New York. And um, there were Buddhists. There were a group of monks, lamas sent by the Dalai Lama. Now, I saw something interesting. When the, when the people, all the people, they're standing up and saying good things about each other. It's the same God that we worship. God is all loving. We should not fight in the name of God. And I could see the Lama sitting in the back and smiling. <laughs> From their point of view, they're too polite and nice to say otherwise. From their point of view, you are a superstitious lot. What God? What God? You have no shred of evidence of that such a God. You are a superstitious lot. They're sitting and smiling. I'm saying it aloud. They will never say such a thing. They're non-violent and very nice and very sweet. And if you ask a Christian theologian or a Vaishnava Pandit about what they think about the Buddhists, it, they will think that they are a selfish lot. Self-centered. Navel, there's a term, navel-gazing. No devotion to God. A Swami, who is a very devoted person of our order, no less, he said... A great annoyance. It seems to me a half a religion. Buddhism. We have everything there except God. How is it possible to have a religion without God? <laughs> Yet from Advaita point of view, it makes perfect sense. Both. What you seek in Buddhism and find, what you seek in traditional religion, in, in theistic religion, are one and the same thing. Yeah. A question from the internet audience? Uh, this is an email from Amrita, who's actually voicing a question that's come from many people. Um, <clears throat> she says, I find that Advaita Vedanta says that we are God himself, but there is one question in my mind, and that is, if I am God, then to whom do I pray? And why do I pray? 
when I am all in all. All right. Look at the language of this question. If I am God in Advaita Vedanta, that thou art. And I can't escape, I just said it at great length. <laughs> so if that's true, then whom do I pray to? Look at the language. I pray. Which means I remain as I am. An individual being who needs the grace of God. I'm devoted to God. I love the Lord, my God. And somehow I'm also God, Advaita told me. So now you're putting me in trouble. How can I pray to God? When Advaita says that you are God, you are one with God, Tattva Masi Aham Brahmasmi, what they mean is two things. First of all, they, when they say that you are God, it means you are not the individual person you think yourself to be. When Shankaracharya sings, Chidananda Rupaha Shivoham, I am pure consciousness, pure bliss of the nature of Shiva. What did he sing in the first three lines? Mano buddhya hankara chittani naham, nacha shrotra jivve, nacha ghrana netre, nacha vyoma bhumir, natejo navayu. I am not the mind, I am not the intellect, I am not the memory, I am not the ego. I am not the ego. Look at the contradiction, apparently. Ego is, means what? I. And who is, what is he saying? I, the ego, saying I am not the ego. That means the real I is not the ego. I am not the senses. I am not the body and the mind made of the five, five elements. Sky and earth and fire and water. No. Then only am I, have I any right to say, I am pure consciousness, pure bliss of the nature of Shiva. I cannot be Swami Sarvapriyananda sitting in this chair and claim to be God. That's megalomania. That's craziness. Vedanta never says that. Vedanta says, realize yourself as you truly are, you will find yourself that you are one with God. Even then you will not be God. When we study Vedanta, we see, I'll just put it in uh, one or two sentences, I can't explain the whole thing here. The same existence consciousness bliss associated with Maya is called Saguna Brahman or God of religion. The same existence consciousness bliss limited by an individual avidya, a part of Maya, one ajnana, avidya, ignorance, is called the individual, you are my, I. They are never the same. According to Advaita Vedanta, God is Saguna Brahman, Brahman, Satchidananda, plus Maya. Brahman plus Maya. Satchidananda plus Maya. That is Saguna Brahman, God. And the individual, Jiva, is the same Brahman, but limited by ajnana, by a tiny portion of Maya. So the end result, Jiva, is never equal to Ishvara. Shankaracharya himself clearly says, the wave belongs to the ocean. The ocean never belongs to the wave. We are never saying that the Jiva is Ishvara. The Jiva, the individual being, human being, is God. No, no, no. The reality of Jiva and the reality of Ishvara are one and the same. At that point, neither Ishvara is Ishvara nor Jiva is Jiva. It is one pure consciousness. That's what Advaita Vedanta is saying. At that point, there is nobody to pray and nobody to pray to. At that point, who will pray for what? Now, can I, knowing that, can I go on praying? Of course. The moment you feel, I am this individual being, though in reality I be pure consciousness, of course I can pray to God. When I when I'm standing in the body and mind, and I act as the body and mind, and I do act as the body and mind, all the time, 
except when I'm reading Vedanta. <laughs> Even then you are the body and mind because you are reading Vedanta. So why can I not pray to God? If I can eat, if I can walk, if I can talk, if I can ask a question, if I can answer a question, I can do everything in life and not pray to God. Why not? Hanuman, when he was asked by Ramachandra, what do you think of me? Hanuman said, as a body, I am Hanuman, thy servant. As the conscious being inside this body, the jiva, I'm part of thee. You are the whole, I'm the part. But as pure consciousness, the Atman, you and I are the same thing. Which one is true? All of them are true. The ultimate truth is you and I are the same thing. But in this position, as a body and mind, I can perfectly act, Thou art the Lord, I am thy servant. Between me and thee exists a bond of love. Kabir's song, translated by Tagore, so beautiful. From the beginning of time till the end of time, a love exists between us. How could such love ever be severed? How could such a bond be ever, be, ever be severed? So beautiful. Like the Chakor, which looks up at the moon. There's a tra traditional Indian story about the night bird Chakor, Chandar Chakor, they say, which, which falls in love with the moon. Of course, it's a little bird. And it looks at the moon. Of course, it can never reach the moon. But it pines away from the moon for all its life, looks up at the moon. I am like that. And I'm perfectly alright because ultimately I'm one with you. So I know I'm safe. But till the, as, a, as an individual being, I can love the cosmic. I can love my beloved. Why not? There is that great, beautiful saying. Before enlightenment, dualism leads to confusion, to delusion, being trapped in samsara. After enlightenment, the enlightened person imagines a duality, a difference between himself and the Lord for the sake of love. Bodhat prak dvaitam mohaya. Before enlightenment, dualism leads to delusion. I get trapped in samsara. Friend, enemy, good, bad, things to be done, regrets, ambitions, dualism. After enlightenment, what happens to dualism? A dualism is now imagined. Really there is no dualism. It's an appearance now, like snake in the rope. It's imagined. Why? Because of joy. Bhakti artham kalpitam dvaitam. I imagine a dualism, a dualism because it appears to me. I don't have to work hard at it. It appears. The dualism continues to appear even for an enlightened person. And why do I do, do that? Bhakti, for love. And then what? Advaita adapisundaram. It is more beautiful than non-dualism. One great non-dualistic teacher giving a talk about the Bhagavatam. Which is also, which is an excellent dualistic text. Not dualistic text, I will say it's an excellent text of bhakti. Now one bhakti tradition teacher, he grumbled. He said, yes, those non-dualists, they have such a boring time of it. Naturally, they are going to come into our territory and talk about our Krishna and our Bhagavatam. What, what are they going to do all day long? Talk about Maya and Brahman and how the world is an appearance? Just boring. So they are going to end up talking about love anyway. <laughs> all right. Can you give the microphone to him? Um, Swami, um, I've, I've heard you say and I've read that um, the, the universe appears as bubbles in my consciousness. Yes. And 
given that, sometimes I find when I'm in class, I, I think to myself, well, here, here I am surrounded by myself, and there's me talking to me, teaching me about myself. Yes. Given that, what is knowledge? Knowledge is that which removes an ignorance in a particular mind. Ignorance has what, you know, there is an appearance of duality here, right? Even after knowledge, the appearance of duality will not go away. But the appearance of duality will be seen as an appearance of duality. The underlying unity will be understood clearly, without any doubt. So you and I and all of us are one. And it's not crazy to talk about it like that. Because I know I have attended classes in, in the Himalayas where the Swami starts the class by sitting, Mere Atma Swaroop Sab, O all ye who are my very self. You have come in this way. <laughs> Even m mundane things in the, in the Himalayas, there are what is called Bhandara. Bhandara is a big occasion for monks, where monks are invited to feasts. Rich people give money and a, and a, a nice meal is cooked and you invite monks. Now it depends. You can't invite all monks because there isn't enough food. So some of these Bhandaras are limited number. You have, you have to have RSVP or what do you call it? Yes. And they will go around. There is such and such a feast and such and such ashram on such and such date. Now, how many people from your ashram will go? How many monks will go? So instead of saying monks, they use very interesting language. Kitne murti. How many forms are going? <laughs> the reality is one. How many forms are going to go? How many? Murti is a form. How many forms shall you be? There's a funny story about Swami Brahmananda. Um, in, I mentioned Swami Brahmananda had gone to Kashi, the hospital, with the Holy Mother. And so everybody would gather around him and meditate and he would talk to them. It was such an exalted atmosphere. Nobody wanted to go anywhere. And so an invitation came as it does for a bhandara, for a feast in some other ashram. And nobody wanted to go. And the head of the ashram felt very uh, discomfited because... If he doesn't make a good showing, he will lose face in the sadhu samaj, in the, in the committee of monks. Nobody came from your ashram. What, are you, you don't want to come, you don't like us or what? So he went to Swami Brahmananda and said, Swami, everybody comes to you early in the morning. And tomorrow we have an invitation to a feast and nobody wants to go. They all want to sit in front of you. What do I do? And Swami Brahmananda said, don't worry. The next day they all came. All the monks, they bowed down to him. And he said, stand in a queue. They all stood in a queue with hands folded. Now, he said, about turn. And they turned around. <laughs> and now, off with you, march off to the, to the feast. And they all marched off to the feast. So they had a big turn off. It's an imagined duality. And the knowledge removes ignorance there. Before this that it's an imagined duality, it's a very real duality. You see the duality and it's very real. The non-duality seems to be theoretical. After the Advaitic teaching comes, it removes the ignorance in our mind and uh, then the appearance which continues is recognized as an appearance, not anymore uh, as a real uh, duality. And that removes the sorrow. You see, the sorrow comes from the reality, not from the appearance. The greatest of tragedies, the most evil of, of people, the most horrible things are acceptable where? Even enjoyable. Where? In the theater. 
in fiction, in theatre, in a movie, in Hollywood. Correct. Even the worst of things, you'll enjoy it and you'll give it an Oscar award. <laughs> For a fraction of something, a person would be locked up if he actually tried to do it in the world. Huh? Would be hauled up before the International Court of Justice in The Hague or something. But in a movie, you give it Oscars. Why? Because the sting is taken out when it, is, becomes, it becomes art, it becomes enjoyable. Even horrible things, let alone enjoyable things. For an enlightened person, only from his point of view, that person's point of view, nothing is really horrible anymore. That does not mean he'll be cold and cruel and calculating when it comes to others. When others are suffering, he'll be all help, all comfort, all sympathy. From his own point of view, it's a play. That's why I say, if you, are in, if you claim enlightenment, you have no right to complain anymore. If you claim enlightenment, you have no right to complain anymore. One person came to Belurmat, and he was Australian. So he had a strong Australian accent. The Swami who was sitting in the inquiry, the Swami is especially short Swami, and this is especially big Australian. Australians are big, and this is especially big Australian. So the, this gentleman had to kneel down, and the Swami was sitting in the chair so that they could be on the same level. Even then the Swami couldn't understand what he was saying. He called me and said, look, you know English quite well. You talk to this person. What is he saying? And it turned out that the gentleman was saying that he had visions of Christ, of Krishna, of Ramakrishna, and they had all entered into his body. I said, fine, that's wonderful. I mean, it's way beyond, it's beyond my league. <laughs> the only person who can help you is there. I pointed to the Ramakrishna temple. He's sitting there. He can help you. I mean, it's, it's way beyond my league. But what's your problem? Let me ask you. That threw him. Problem? Um, well, he looked unhappy. He said, well, actually, I feel it's all coming to an end and I don't want to die. Oh, really? You don't want... You have experienced Christ consciousness and Krishna consciousness and Ramakrishna consciousness. You know that you are the infinite being and everything. And this particular body, you're afraid it'll die. That's your real big problem. And then he looked confused and he thought, oh, maybe I gave him matter for thought and he went away. One last question from the internet. We are almost out of time. Oh, you, you have a question? Okay. Vishwanda has a question. And then we'll come to the internet question. Yes. Yes. Is this be regarded uh, as spiritual retreat? All right. The question by one of our senior most members is he's quoting from Shankaracharya's Kaupina Panchakam the traditional monks have um, they go around wearing only a loincloth nothing else and that too not all monks there are some in the high Himalayas who don't even who discard that piece of luxury also so they, are, they go around stark naked now Kaupina Vanta means the wearer of the loincloth which means a monk the monk is fortunate that's the refra refrain of the whole uh, hymn uh, of the stotra Kaupinavanta Kalubhagyavanta the truly fortunate is the wearer of the loincloth and it ends on the, that note Brahmaksharam Pavanam Ucharanta Brahmamam Aham Asmiti Vibhavavanta Dikshu Paribrahmanta he says constantly contemplating the Vedantic truth that I am Brahman as long as the body lives wandering over this, over this wide earth, 
sleeping wherever he finds shelter. Swami Vivekananda said, Food, whatever chance may bring, good or bad, can never taint the self which knows itself. It's a wonderful life. Those who have tried it, it's a, it's a kind of freedom one can only, you, you cannot imagine it. You are completely devoted in, to in spiritual life. That Your whole identity is, I am Brahman. And the body is given up to, to, to call it to, to God, to karma, what chance will bring. I myself tried a little bit of that. Tremendous freedom. I wandered from village to village in the Himalayas, begged for my food, slept under a tree, meditated on a mountain peak with, with the shining peaks, the, the real giants surrounding me, 20,000 feet, 25,000 feet towering above. I was much lower there, about 9,000, 10,000 feet. And sitting on a, on a huge rock and meditating and seeing this extraordinary vista laid out in front of me. And not a care in the world. At least some kind of understanding that I am Brahman. The wearer of the loincloth is truly fortunate, Shankaracharya says. We think, who is fortunate? The rich person who has made a killing on Wall Street, you know, made a lot of money on Wall Street, or has won the lottery, or has, um, who is fortunate in his her relationships, has property, or very famous, made it in Hollywood. That person is fortunate, not at all. Not in the least. Is a person who does not have any of this and does not want any of this. Who is perfectly satisfied either as a devotee with God alone, my, my Krishna, Mereto Giridhara Gopala, or as the self within, pure existence, consciousness, bliss. That person is truly happy. That's the real, as he asked, is that a spiritual retreat? Yes, that's the real spiritual retreat. A taste of which we are trying to have here today. Please let me know when the food is ready. And we will take a question from the internet audience here. Do you have a question? Yes. Um, this is from Sarav. Swami Vivekananda says that this truth is first to be listened to, then to be thought about. Lastly, this is to be meditated upon. But when I sit to think and meditate upon this truth, that I am God, I am unable to get hold of sufficient material to think upon. For example, do I think of a stage where everything crumbles in the dust, but only I will stand alone? I can't realize it. I think when everything will crumble, so will I. Please guide on how the thought process should be. Did you listen to the question? If I have to meditate, study it, Shravana, hear it, think about it, reason upon it, Manana, and then meditate upon what you have studied and reasoned upon, Nididhyasana. But he says, suppose I sit and meditate, I am God. First of all, I don't get enough material to meditate upon. And second, if I think everything is not there and I am God, even then I feel I am not there also. I also crumble away there. So how do I meditate? Much more important is the study and the thinking. Why I do not find material for meditation is because I have not given sufficient stress there. The whole of Vedanta, all these Upanishads, the commentaries of Shankaracharya, all these hymns, Kaupina Panchakam, he just quoted, all these texts, Aparokshanabhuti, Drikdrishya Viveka, this is material. How much material do you want? 
The 700 verses of Bhagavad Gita, the 555 sutras of the Brahma Sutra, the, the vast, it's an ocean of material. And all of it tells you the same truth. Right. All of it tells you the same truth, that you are Brahman. It's an enormous amount of material to meditate upon. That's one point. Swami Turiyanandaji used to say, how did, somebody asked, how did you spend your time in the Himalayas? He lived in a little cottage by the side of the Ganges. Cottage built of twigs and leaves and all. He said, part, job, dhan, job, dhan, part. Part means study. Japa means repeating the mantra. Dhyana means meditation. I studied the Vedanta, I repeated the mantra, I meditated. Then I, when meditation is not deep, you don't like it, repeat the mantra. When you get tired of the mantra, study the Vedanta. When you get the mind becomes deep and concentrated, go back to the mantra. Deeper and more concentrated in deep meditation. Lose your concentration, come back to studying and the mantra. And what do you do? He says the cycle continued day and night. Day and night the cycle continued. That's matter for meditation. He says, how did I... Oh, okay, this story. Swami Prabhavanandaji, who established the Hollywood Center, Center in Hollywood, 1930. Um, he, when he was in Benares, oh, we keep going back to Benares today. When he was in Benares, Swami Turiyanandaji was in Benares at that time. Um, Hari Maharaj, great Vedantin. And so Prabhavanandaji thought, I should learn Gita from Turiyanandaji himself. What a fortune. So he went to Turiyanandaji himself and he said, please teach me the Gita. And Turiyanandaji said, okay, get the Gita tomorrow, take a bath, come early in the morning, tomorrow I will start the lesson. With great expectation with the Gita, he arrived, presented himself before Swami Turiyananda and said, please teach me the Gita. And Swami Turiyananda said, take up one verse, memorize it, meditate upon it, try to put it into practice in your life, then go on to the next verse. This is my first and last lesson in Gita to you. <laughs> Because he found Prabhavanandaji, that he was Abani at that time, Abani Maharaj, to be of that caliber, who would actually do it, you know, who would do this. Matter for meditation. This is matter for meditation. Take up texts and think deeply about it. All of them are telling you that you are Brahman. Now the second thing is, why is it difficult? If I think that, he said, if I think the world is crumbling away, I too tend to crumble away there. You know why? The problem is, what are you thinking of yourself as? You are thinking of yourself as body and mind. As this person who is trying to meditate here. I know theoretically I am Brahman. Now I am this body and mind. Somehow I will become Brahman when I realize that. No. It will not work that way. When the world crumbles, body and mind also goes with it. Correct. And what is left? Here, follow this carefully. In whose vision, in whose drishti, in whose awareness, in what awareness did the world, body and mind crumble away into nothingness? Look at your own language. Did you not say, I see when the world crumbles away, even I crumble away into, no into nothingness. If you crumble away into nothingness, who is that which notes that you are crumbling away into nothingness? Meditate on that. Stay with that. On that beautiful, very high note, uh, we'll bring it to a, a conclusion. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, 
খালি পেটে ধর্ম হয় না নো রিলিজন অন এন এম টি স্টমাক নো স্পিরিচুয়াল রিট্রিট অলসো অন এন এম টি স্টমাক সো আই এম ইনফর্ম দ্যাট দ্য ফুড ইজ রেডি উইল কনক্লুড ইট এট দিস পয়েন্ট ও শান্তি 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 হরি ও তৎসৎ শ্রীরামকৃষ্ণারপণমস্তু